This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Does it make you feel like a fraud that you have to inspire people? Because that's like a bullshit term, inspiring people. I don't mean you're bullshitting. I just mean inspiration doesn't necessarily mean anything. I think energy doesn't lie when someone's watching. When I start to feel nervous, I just say, you know what? I'm going to take the pressure off me and I'm just going to focus out. And I say, I'm here to give, I'm here to give, I'm here to give. As opposed to, what are people going to think about me? I hope I look good. I hope I look funny or smart. I just let that go. I try to take the spotlight and put it back onto the audience. And that's what I try to do with this talk show. That's what I try to do with my podcast. Is not make it about me, is put it on the expert, put it on the guests. Put it on the human interest. Put it on the audience. The spotlight might be shining on me, but the goal is to reflect that light on everyone else. I find often what people just need is just permission to know that what they're doing is not wrong. Exactly. Once again, I have my good friend Lewis Howes on the podcast. Yes. Welcome to the show again. Thanks, James. Appreciate it. I don't know how many times you've been on the show. This like must be at least the third or fourth. I believe fourth. Yeah, because one time you came on just for the heck of it. <laughs> and then you've had two books. You came on for both of those. Yeah, and I think this, this is, is the fourth. Yeah. And then I've been on your podcast, I think, three, twice. Three or four. Or yeah, two yeah. or three. Two or two three. three. Yeah. One time here, one time in LA. One and on Skype. Two, one on Skype, I think. Maybe one on Skype. <clears throat> so, so we've known each other for five and a half years. We... Is that it? Yeah, uh, yeah, since early 2013, because we were at that conference where I've spoken about this on the podcast before, because I had Joey Coleman on the podcast. We were at that that in in, uh, uh, Toronto. Yeah, in Toronto, mastermind talks. The mastermind talks where we all spoke, and Tim Ferriss was speaking. Ryan Holiday, almost everybody's been on the podcast, but Tim Ferriss was there. Ryan Holiday, um, AJ Jacobs, and the audience would vote who would give the best speech they won 25 grand and, right? yeah 30 grand 30 grand and 30. joey coleman did it because he mentioned everyone's name in in the audience yeah he was he was smart because there's this cognitive bias that if you see your name you're more likely to vote for that person and so he and your mentioned, photo yeah he put those photos up he mentioned everybody in the room he also did something else which was like <laughs> there was no way anyone was going to win because he started opening up about the importance of family and he said, how many people here have kids? And he talked about like the importance of kids and the relationship between parents and children. And he started getting really emotional and crying. And I think anytime you talk about kids, family, and you show a photo of every person in the room, you can't beat that. I feel like every everybody who gave a talk that day cried right? <laughs> because they thought that was going to be the technique that would win. <laughs> And I do think Joey did give $100,000 in value. That was sort of the premise. Yeah, he give $100,000 in value. I just wanted to make people laugh a little bit. Uh-huh. So I think I you were was hilarious. good at that. You were hilarious. <laughs> and I was the last person before Tim was speaking. So I di- I used some cognitive biases as well, which is I said, let's give a round of applause for all the people who have come before me and Tim. So I kind of, then, then there's something called ambiguity bias where uh, if you say, if you just lump everybody together as a group, then people can't, autom- all of a sudden, their brains can't determine who was oh. who. So yeah, I actually- So it was down to you and Tim then. Yeah, so it was down to me and Tim. But of wow. course, none of us came in the, t- Tim and I didn't come in the top three. That's interesting. So, I like but that. I, but I, tr- I, right before my talk, I was scared to death and I called up this professor at um, 
uh, Georgia Tech, and he got all, all his students in a room, and they focused on cognitive biases, mm. and they were trying to give me cognitive bias after cognitive bias to how to win. Like one <laughs> of the tricks was just you know, since there was thirteen speakers and only maybe one hundred twenty people in the audience, it's only going to be a few votes that would make the difference. She so said, just give ten people five dollars each. And that's smart, actually. Yeah, that would be really smart. Just to get all you need is like an extra two or three votes. But I did not do that. That's that's good. <laughs> so yeah, integrity. Yeah, you've yeah, got it exactly. You've got it. I'm curious, what's the things you've learned the most over the last two and a half years of doing stand up that have helped you understand human behavior even more? Uh, what's the biggest pickups you've found? Okay, so and then I'll interview you. Okay, <laughs> but. Uh, there's a lot. It depends on the day, and and you know, it's, I'm still learning. I'm still on the steep learning curve, uh, but I would say uh, you need people to like you before they're going to listen to you. So really? it doesn't matter how funny you are. If nobody likes you, they're not going to laugh. Really? And uh, so, so you have to do something that makes them like you before you even like say something. Right. It doesn't have to be funny. It doesn't. Humor <laughs> is not the most important skill. Likeability is. Yeah, likeability. And and many comedians who have come on this podcast have, have said the same thing without prompting from me. That like because I used to have I used to go up and and when I first started, I was doing some jokes that I thought were very funny. Like my friends would laugh. Kamal, who's sitting over here, would be in the audience. He would laugh hysterically. But uh my non-friends in the audience Crickets. would not only I would get heckled because it would be extremely blue, crude material. Mm. And they just didn't like me. They if they didn't know me, they thought I was some weirdo. So so Bill and Karen, who are comedians also in the in the audience here, would you say likability is is the most important factor? One hundred percent. It does nothing to do with the content. It really doesn't. That's like a bonus mm. if your content's funny. But it's you. They're there for you. Wow. Yeah, they're there for you. Even if they don't know, you've never heard of you. How right. do you? How, so, what are the things you've learned how to get likability within the first three seconds? You could you could talk to them like just build you rapport. Know, where are you from? Yeah, where yeah. are you from? Where are you from? I'm from here. Hey, we have something in common. Mm -hmm. You can say you, you can be very vulnerable. Like, oh, I, I'm the ugliest person here. That would be a little too cliche, like pandering to the audience. Mm. Um, so that so that's number two, which is the audience is an X-ray machine. So they know what they, if you're, it's like a magician. The audience is trying to figure out what the trick is. Yeah. And they know if you're pandering to them, they know if you're lying, mm. they know if the joke is a little too cliche or kitschy. Uh, isn't, so, well, isn't every comedian a liar? Because they always say, this is a true story. I always hear that, this true story, this really happened, and then it didn't happen. So it's like there's always like a lie. Sometimes but that was what makes it funny, though. But, but like, that could, but that could be clear from the beginning that this uh, is my style, and I'm going to say things that build up a little bit of tension and make mm. you think, and then I'm going to move on to the next thing. So, so for instance, Stephen Wright, um, who's famous for one-liners, he has a joke: um, "It's a small planet, but I wouldn't want to paint it." So, and he gives it in a very dry delivery, like much drier than I just did, and. Clearly, it doesn't make any sense. It's not true, but that's his style. So his audience goes because they know that's going to be his style. So that's like his truth. Got Rather it. than he's not really playing with facts, but that's his truth talking about things mm. like in that way. So I would say the opposite is that the 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 audience is not going to trust you if you if you start lying. We're but I'll expand the definition of lie, which is not being true to who you are. Got it. As opposed to facts. Mm. But then there was an, another thing, mm. which is that you have to have or at least 
strongly appear to be having more fun than the audience. Really? So you have to, and, and Bill, who's, who's in the audience, we talk about this all the time, the party has to be where you're at and the audience is simply invited to your party. Really? But and there's if, some comics that aren't seeming like they have that much fun, but they deliver in such a way that it's just so funny, right? Yeah, but I bet you, I bet you, if you're seeing them live, it actually looks like they're having the most fun of anyone really? there. Like, yeah. well, I don't know if you're thinking of any. Specific- I'm not. I'm just thinking of times I've been at the club and seen comics. Like, if you think of like a classic guy like Jerry Seinfeld, he's just up there like complaining, <laughs> and, and, and then you're like, "Don't you guys agree with me?" Yeah. And you you feel stupid if you don't agree. Like right. he's the one do- controlling the frame of the audience. Sure, and uh, uh, and that's. You know, he might not even be saying anything that makes sense, but the combination of his likability and he's mm-hmm. having a party, yeah. you just feel like it's laughing. interesting. Yeah, who's taught you the most about comedy? Who's been the greatest teacher? Uh, I think just watching over and over like the best mm-hmm. comics on YouTube or live yeah. or or in the club downstairs. Just because every week I might have a new favorite and just studying them and wow. all their nuances. I would say just like any skill, like when you're building your business. There's all. It's not like people become skilled at being a businessman, or you're also, you know, a former professional football player. It's not like, oh, I'm good at football. There's all these micro skills. Like you have to be good at catching, you have to be good at throwing, you have to be good at running, you have to be good at yeah. blocking and tackling, and there's all these micro skills. So and it's like been, you've played the game. You just know everything. Well, it's like you understand football. <laughs> and I don't know anything about football. <laughs> I'm just teasing. But but with. With with business too, you have to be good at negotiating. You have to be good at sales. You have to deal yeah, with customers. Yeah. You have to deal with Managing investors. People, yeah. Motivate people. Uh, and uh, I would say, out of all of these different skills that I've learned in my lifetime, stand up comedy is probably the most difficult I've ever learned. I'm sure, there's so many micro skills, and then you're scared to death every single time dealing with the audience. Do you two still get scared to death? Yep, all the time. He's shaking his head. No, nah. you're not scared. Why not? Uh, because I don't know, I don't respect the audience at all, and that's like literally it changed whenever I lost all respect for anybody there, and I, I view them below me, and so that's it. Wow. Because this is the thing: is if you have to be, you have to be so confident that you you're not afraid of making a mistake. The second right. you build Otherwise them you're up at all in your eyes, these are just some people who paid to watch you talk, like yeah. whatever. Like, yeah, um, it's but, true. If you if you show an ounce of fear, if you stutter you once. Because I was even watching the video from yesterday. Jay over here took the video of me doing yesterday, and it was a great set. But the one or two times in those twenty minutes that I even stuttered, like stumbled over a word, immediately all the laughter stopped. Like really? it made sense, and they, they don't even know they're doing it. Because then if I would get myself together, they would get back on track, and we'd, everything would be fine. But they sense the slightest insecurity. ounce yeah. of fear or insecurity or anything. Wouldn't you say? Wow, they're X-ray machines, and 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 that skill applies. To business, like I've gone mm-hmm. on TV news shows, and and you you've been on on TV, of course, and it's the same type of thing. Like there's a couple anchors, and there's a couple people on the panel, and it's and I feel that muscle mm-hmm. kicking in. I might not be using humor, but I now need to control the audience a little bit with these anchors in this panel, so that I'm not overwhelmed by their. It's p- interesting you say that. I just interviewed uh, Leslie Odom Jr. Have you had him on yet? I haven't had him on. Inspiring guy, the guy from uh, Hamilton, and re- wrote a great book called Failing Up. And uh, he he talked about how he was about to quit acting after like ten years. He was like a working actor, but never really broke through in the industry, and just kind of felt beat down 
after 10 years of being in LA and all this stuff. He was on Broadway early in his career, but then never really broke through. And he was going to give up, but his mentor was like, you know what? Let's try a couple more things before you give up. He was literally gonna say, I wanna go work at a hotel or like find a job or do something in hospitality or whatever. Yeah. Like I'm done acting. And his mentor said, well, why don't we try one more thing before you like give up? Come to my, um, you know, acting 101 class for commercial actors and just take the class. I want you to do it for a couple of months. And then if you're not seeing any results, then you can stop essentially, something like that. And so he goes in the first class, day one. These are like beginner actors. They have no clue what they're doing. Uh, it's their first like week of acting class, right? And it's specifically- Did he feel like- uh, like they're beneath him. Yeah, do you feel like, like it's like the audience? They're like beneath him, right? Because mm -hmm. like, he's been on Broadway, he's right. done it all. Like he was like a classically trained singer, all these things. And these are just like teen kids and moms and like everywhere in between who are just trying to get commercial gigs. They're not trying to be on TV shows. They're just trying to do commercials. And so he's going through, and the guy's teaching like the basics one on one. And he has everyone stand in a line and deliver a line, like a simple like three to five words or a sentence. And so everyone does this and he records them all. And at the end, he has everyone watch back everyone's performance, right? Everyone did this one line, the same line. And he said, now here's the secret. The secret is not listening to what you say and having no volume on. So they watched it all on mute. Mm -hmm. And when they watched it all, you could see, he was like, this is what commercial casting directors look for. They don't care like how you deliver something, the words, they care about the energy and the look. Mm. And when you're watching something on screen, you know, energy doesn't lie. We can tell when you don't have it or when you do have it just by like the way you smile, the way you hold yourself, the way you carry yourself. And he noticed that he delivered it with this, you know, acting degree that he had from some fancy school, but watching it without the volume on he looked really sad and kind of like depressed and just not with it. And he said, that's the key to beginner's luck. People go into casting, they're just like happy, they're passionate, they don't know any better, they haven't been beaten down in the industry and then they book the gigs like right away. And he said he kind of lost that because he was always trying to book the gigs and he kept getting rejected, but they usually have the volume off. And so he realized I have to show up in a certain passion and when just to tie in what you were talking about, you know, the press that I've been doing this week, I've been tired, like running around New York, getting sweaty here and there, sitting, waiting for it to go on TV for like my three to five minutes. And I know that today more than ever, people are watching videos and not listening to it on Facebook specifically, right? Mm -hmm. They have subtitles on them now. And we usually will stop and pause it when we see something active that we really connect to visually. And so I just try to go there physically, emotionally, and bring the energy in those moments. And that's, that's what really- I, I, yeah. I never thought of that. Like I'm gonna have to watch my videos with the on mute because I think that's that's a powerful idea. Watch your comedy at least yeah. for a few minutes and see like, am I just standing there like dead? Maybe you're saying something funny, but if you don't have some type of energy, and maybe that's your stick too, where it's like you don't move or whatever it may be. But I think energy doesn't lie when someone's watching if they're not listening. So, so, so just to bring it all together, so, you've been doing kind of promotions because mm -hmm. you've launched, and I'm gonna call it a TV show, but it's not on TV, it's on Facebook. It's on Facebook. Which arguably has a much larger audience than the television audience. Yep, two billion and, plus people. And yep. uh, the titles, you know, in-, in, in Inspiring Life with Lewis Howes. Inspiring yep. Life with Lewis Howes, and it's, a, it's an audience setting, and you go into the audience and talk to people and inspire them. <laughs> 
Yeah, I try to curate inspiration. I don't try to be the one who's inspiring and try to like solve everyone's problems, but it's really how can I curate with the right expert to give you expertise, but also some coaching and some facilitation with the live audience. And um, what, what do you mean? Because the show hasn't launched yet. Comes so, out, so yeah, yeah. Comes out August 6th. Yeah. So I don't know when people listen to this, probably around August 6th. Yeah. And uh, uh, what's an example of, of you've, you've shot the series already, obviously. Yeah, shot it already. So it's, it's me in a room with like 40 people, but the people are like, I could touch the front row. So it's very intimate, very close, as opposed to other talk shows I've been on where it's like a bunch of cameras in front of you and the people are behind, kind of in the distance very disconnected. This is like a very intimate, emotional experience. And um, it's only about an 18 to 20 minute episode, so it's condensed. And we deliver a theme. Every episode has a theme. So one's about the fear of money, and we've got Ramit, who's the expert who comes on. We've got one on happiness with Gretchen Rubin, all people you know. We've got one with Jay Shetty. I'm not sure if you had him on. Uh, I think he's, we've talked to him. He hasn't yeah, come on yet. Really inspiring but guy. But me and Gretchen have been on many times. Yeah. Um, Gabby Bernstein, I'm not sure if you had her on. Yeah, so yeah. We talk about the power of forgiveness. So each one has a specific Wait, who theme. else? who else you had on? I want to see if you had it on all, everybody who was a podcast. Everyone is on here, yeah. Uh, a couple of the people, we did the, uh, the Time's Up a legal defense fund, a couple of the people from there. And we, we talked about Time's Up and Me Too. So I'm not sure if you've had them on, but... Um, but those were the the five that we did to start. And each one we, you know, asked a question. We ask a question, put it out there. Are you struggling with uh, the fear of money? If so, let's help you overcome that. What does that it struggle. mean, the fear of money? Like are people well, this was funny. This is something that money. I think this is something that was funny because Ramit brought up a statistic on the show actually, where he said, you know, people and tell me if this is true, everyone here, that people are more willing to talk about their intimate sex life than how much money they have or how much money they make, or about money in general. More people, at least in America, talk about, this is who I slept with, this is what we did, this is how we did it, than this is how much I make. I think I'm more afraid to talk about my sex life than money. <laughs> well, maybe you're the, <laughs> I talk you're about the outlier. The time. You're the outlier, right? <laughs> yeah. well, you're the money expert. Um, but this is what he said, most people are, are more willing to talk about sex and what they did personally than how much they make, or how much they spent on something, or how much they have in the bank, or their debt. They're more afraid and ashamed to talk about money. I think because we probably associate life worth with net worth. Absolutely. Much more than we associate life worth with- Sex you know, worth. Yeah, sex worth, whatever that is, <laughs> or however you define it. Exactly. That, net worth is defined by just one thing, which is how much money you have. Yep. Sex worth is all over the place. That's it. And for me, I think, you know, I struggled with money growing up because we didn't have much. And so I think there was a model of- being afraid about it. And people were bad if they had lots of money, right? And, um, and so I think that mindset is, is a lot of people have that. I think so so the person you focus in on in the audience, so we have what, different what people. was he specifically, or he specifically afraid of? Um, well, for that one specifically, you know, we have different people. We'd have mm -hmm. different people from the audience ask questions about money, like, how do I get out of debt? How do I get, you know, how do I earn more on the side if I'm already working full-time job? And then Ramit would kind of share his coaching. I would share coaching. We'd give examples and exercises on how to overcome stuff and just try to teach and facilitate the whole time. But yeah, that's the and, and And what did you think? Like, let's take that show in particular. Yep. How how long did it take to shoot it? And then how long was the final? It took about end? an hour, hour and a half to shoot. And, and again, then you edited it down to like to 20 like 18, minutes. 20 minutes, yeah. It was, a, it was an interesting process because I'd never done anything like this. I've just like this, turned the mic on and record for an hour and, and 
no edits, just let it fly. Where this was 30 plus people in a room who are on the crew, you know, the camera guy, the, the prompter person, you've got the director, the executive producer, you've got the stage people, you know, everyone was there. And it was kind of crazy the first day. It was a little all over the place because we didn't really know. We had a vision for the show, but we didn't know exactly how it was going to go. And so my showrunner, this amazing guy, he's like, okay, I want you to really try this. Go jump in the audience at this point. Go try this. Like stand over here, walk around, like get messy with it. And then I do those things. And he's like, uh, actually, don't do that because we don't have coverage of the camera. And so pull that back. And it was just kind of like stop and go, stop and go, which for, for me was extremely frustrating because I'd get into something and then they say cut and there's like a live audience there. And I'm like, we got to do it over. We didn't have the camera ready. We didn't have this. And I'm like, you guys, it's really hard to just get in the flow every time you want me to like turn it on every five minutes. So it was after the first day of filming, I, I went to the team and I was like, listen, here are like the 10 to 11 things that we must never do again. If you want me to be able to show up and do anything well, like we just can't do all these things. Right, because you can't not, this is going to almost sound bad, but you can't like interrupt inspiration. You like, can't interrupt authenticity, right? You can't interrupt a moment and say, like there, we did one on forgiveness, right? And there was a woman who came on who was affected and sexually abused by Larry Nasser, the gymnast um, doctor who molested all these hundreds of women who were in the right. USA gymnast. I don't know if you heard about this story. Yeah, yeah. And so she came on and she's, you know, opening up and crying. And another woman is coming through the audience and said, I was sexually abused by my coach in a whole different sport. And there's this beautiful moment. I'm getting chills just thinking about it. There's this beautiful moment. And thank goodness that they didn't stop that moment. But there's other moments like that where, you know, we were just figuring, figuring things out. And I'm not blaming anyone here. It's just like the nature of launching something new and trying something and developing it and seeing where it's going to go. Um, but there were other moments like that where we had to stop and they were like, okay, Lewis, go back to where you were and ask the question again. And I'm like, it's hard to get that authentic moment Yeah. after you've stopped it, put music on, start it back up and get us back into that moment. So, so with, in that particular situation with the two women uh -huh. who were abused, who were crying, what did you do? How did you how did you kind of let that moment live and and become I let them take it away. You know, for me, I was kind of looking at the executive producer who's on the on the the floor working with me in my like line sight, my eyesight. And he's like, just let it go. You know, so I just kind of let them share. And then at one point I just kind of facilitated it and they kind of like hugged each other and I gave them a hug and what do you mean facilitated it? I was just kind of like directing and navigating. I was like, and how did you feel about that? And how did you feel about that? And then, you know, I just, Were you able to connect with them from your own experiences? Absolutely, yeah. I sat down with her. Originally, it started with me opening up about my experience with her and saying, listen, I can really relate to this because I've shared on the podcast before that I was sexually abused when I was a kid. And I said, I know how it feels to not forgive this person. And for 25 years of my life, I sat with a lot of anger and resentment towards a, a, an experience in my life. And I just told her, I said, it's okay. Cause she was like, I can't forgive him yet. I just don't know what it is, but I can't forgive him. And I said, it's okay. You don't have to. But the willingness to want to forgive in the future, it's what's going to bring you peace. It's not about saying you need to free him. You need to free yourself when you forgive someone else. Not saying it was okay. Not saying it's justified. It's just, if you want to have peace and not be angry anymore, you've got to learn the ability to forgive everyone in your life, not just this one person. That's what I learned specifically. And so 
I think the reason it, it, it works the way it does is because I'm opening up the entire time about every topic. Um, and so is that where, so in order for you to be inspiring these people who have very difficult problems, it sounds like your formula, so to speak, is connect with some moment that, absolutely. You, that, that could then be relatable to their experience and figure out how you took yourself how out I of that overcame moment. it. Yeah, absolutely. And then bringing in the experts to really kind of say, well, here are the steps. You know, right. if you're struggling on the fear of money, here are some steps. And Ramit gives his steps. If you're struggling to forgive someone, here are the steps to get started. If you're feeling really depressed and anxious all the time, then Gretchen Rubin comes in and talks about the, the keys to happiness. Here's some things we can get started. And then we have a discussion with the live audience, discussion with uh, uh, people asking questions on Facebook as well. So the cool thing about this format is we're interactive with the audience. Every week I'll be doing a Facebook Live with people who watch the show mm. and answer their questions. Mm. TV format doesn't do that, at least to my knowledge. Um, and... And that's the key. For me, I feel like we're moving as a society more into watching things on our phone. When I watch a, a movie or I'm watching TV and my nephews and nieces are around, they're on their phone watching YouTube or Facebook or Snapchat or Instagram. They're not watching the movie or the TV show. And I remember when I was going on Ellen, it was it was amazing experience, right? I went on a few times and it was incredible. She's got a huge platform, powerful reach, powerful audience, but I feel like it was a much older demographic that was reaching out to me. This demographic was, you know, I was getting lots of emails and messages, but I could just tell it was everyone over 45 who was emailing me, which is great. But I think I'm also trying to reach the younger demographic. And I think as Gretzky or some famous hockey player said, go to where the puck is going and not where it's at right now. And that's what I tried to do in podcasting was to go to the podcast space before you know, there's now 600,000 plus podcasts. I'm trying to go create online shows before there's, you know, a thousand of them. It's only a couple dozen right now on Facebook. And, uh, you know, it's a risk. It's a gamble because they're not really sure what they're looking for yet. Facebook, they have a clue, but they don't have like a measure of a metric for success. Whereas TV, they're like, okay, if we do, I don't know, half a million or a million people watching, it's, a, it's like a hit right now. It's like a good show, right? Whereas Facebook, is it a million views? Is it a hundred thousand views? Is it twenty million views? They might not know because, like, probably very few people even listening to this right now even are aware that Facebook is doing original programming. This is their still first new. experiments in it. It's still new. Tom Brady had a show that came out um, called. Yeah, I didn't know that. How, called uh, Tom versus Time or Time versus Tom, either one, and it was incredible. It was like an ad on like I think the Super Bowl commercial or something like that. Some big uh, sports game uh, or event online had an ad of it. And it was around, I think it was around Christmas time or like January, February. And it was amazing. It was Tom's life behind the scenes. And he really doesn't open up about stuff. So you got to see in his home, how he trains with his wife, with his kids. And it was really powerful. So that kind of like brought it to market. But I think they haven't. And what were the numbers on that? I think it was getting like 10 to 15 million views a, yeah. a show. And it was like seven to 10 minutes per 10 to 15 million views a show means it's bigger than any TV show exactly. on right the planet. Now. Right now, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, Will Smith's wife, Jada Pinkett Smith, has a show out right now that's doing incredible. It's called Red Table Talk. And it's amazing. And some of the episodes are getting like 15 to 20 million views. Oh. And it's, it's 
essentially like similar themes that I'm covering without a live audience. It's sitting at a table like this, a red table that's a circular table, having a discussion with her daughter, her son, and some other celebrity covering a topic. Her mom is there too. Um, and it's really powerful because I think they never really opened up as like a married couple into the intimacy of their life and experiences. And so now people are fascinated by the lessons they've learned on how to get there. So I have like, that is my show to compare against, you know, well, well, a similar but, show that's talking about similar topics. So I'm like, okay, I got to get 20 million views. I'm thinking to hopefully be a success in Facebook mind, or at least maybe half that to get picked up again. Because right now it's five episodes and we're trying to get picked up for a second season. By Facebook. By Facebook. So so it's interesting though, because like I think of Jada Pinkett Smith, not as a source of inspiration, but it's more of a voyeuristic thing. Like here's this famous person and I'm going to see her talk to her family. Maybe Will Smith will pop in yep. and some other celebrity will be in. You're in there almost as like a millennial Tony Robbins kind of. And I, I, I'm sure you've been compared to that before. So I don't want to, it's all good. Um, but and you, you, you and I both have interviewed Tony on on our podcast. And he's a, a great guy. But uh, uh, you know what you're providing is kind of this direct inspiration and in helping these people who have yeah. very specific and relatable. They're, they're not only very specific problems, but they're relatable to the general population. Masses. Like everyone is worried about money. Everyone feels stuck in their job or stuck mm -hmm. behind debt, or everyone has problems in their relationships yep. or problems figuring out how to be. Happy. So it's good that you brought in the experts like uh -huh. Ramit Sethi or Gretchen Rubin. But where, where, what do you feel is it that you're bringing to the table with each one? I'm bringing my uniqueness and my experience in a different angle. Um, but I'm also, at the end of every episode, we give exercises for people at home. So we give them exercises for each topic on things that they can apply, almost like a challenge for the week. So, like, what's the money exercise? You have to watch. To watch and see. Um, but different stuff to break through on each challenge. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The show is actually originally called another name. It was called Breakthrough, which we, we uh, I won't say why, but we after we announced it, we had to change the name. So it's called Inspiring Life, which I'm actually more, I'm happier with that name anyways. 
Uh, but the whole goal was to like give people breakthrough challenges at the end of every episode. So they had something like a PDF or a checklist that they could go take action on as opposed to just, here's some inspiration. Hope you enjoyed it. See you later. Now, here are some relatable stories that are very specific in different areas around the country and the world of what we think people are going through. So we're finding out these key stories so that hopefully you can relate to at least one person we pull out from the audience with their question and their example. We have an expert giving different topics or giving different uh, keys to how to overcome that. Then I give an, an exercise at the end and then some exercises for people to take home with. So I think it's a kind of like an online education, inspiration, expert talk show. But you also have built up a skill set of, so again, so you wrote, you know, school, school greatness, greatness master, master masculinity, yep. which by the way, there's a chapter about me in there. Thank you there very was, much. Yes. And, the star. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, uh, uh, and also just, you know, I remember when we first met in your, in your talk there, you've built up a skill set and a business of taking your stories, uh, you know, specifically, you initially taking your story of going from broke mm -hmm. to building up a, a multi-million dollar business, and a lot of people want to do that, right. and they want to. They, they're feeling stuck in their jobs, and and they you were offering these these courses and ideas on how to build uh, a business, yep. and that's what you were very good at. You were you were very good at, uh, and are very good at uh, giving people permission to know that they can do that, just like you gave a permission in. The, the situation with the girls who were being abused, yep. you said it's okay to not forgive, but this is kind of an okay path to be on. And you described that path based Absolutely. on your experience. And so you were able to do that, I'm sure, with, with money and some of these other things. So you've built up a skill set of taking other people's stories, matching it to yours, and finding out what that acceptable mm -hmm. path is. Yeah, I feel like I've gotten really good at being a decathlete of life. You know, I've I'm 80% at a lot of different skills. You know, a decathlete to be one, the greatest athlete in the world, you have to win the decathlon. That's the measure of the greatest athlete in the world. They're never the best at one thing. They're never the best in the world at one thing, but they're 80% great at 10 things. Right, so Scott Adams, for instance, calls that the, the talent stack. So he mm. says about, so he made Dilbert, the cartoon strip that's yeah. syndicated everywhere. And he says, I'm pretty good at humor, but not the best. I'm pretty good at drawing, but not the best. Pretty good at writing. Yeah, but not the best. I'm pretty good at business, but not the best. But combining them all together, he's able to create Dilbert. It's deadly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's good to know. What's it called? Talent stacking? Yeah, talent stacking. I like that. I'm going to have to read that and learn more about that because that's what I've just said. I'm like the decathlete of life. I just feel like I'm really good at mastering things to 80%. You know, getting there and praying like, I'm competitive or, you know, I'm good at this. So but how I'm, does I'm, one, how did you do that? How, oh, how can man. I? How can a listener start doing it? They're they're sitting there. I think thinking, you have to learn how to master one thing first. And and for me, sports in general and being an athlete, learning to be an athlete was the first thing for me. Once I learned to be an athlete, then I said, how can I master a different sport? So so it's sort of like you if you master one sport or get eighty percent uh -huh. at one sport, you're learning kind of, okay, Speed, how do I learn strength, to learn? athleticism, vision, teamwork. So I learned it in one sport. Let's say basketball was one of the early sports that I played. And then once I got strong enough, I was like, huh, I'm pretty athletic. Like I could go play soccer. In my freshman year, I played soccer on the varsity. And I was playing in the field and I was also playing goalie sometimes. 
when the football coach came out and watched me play goalie and I was just catching everything with my hands, he goes, you should come out and play receiver for me next year. Never played football before in my life. Never played a game, right? I've like maybe thrown it around in the backyard, but I never played a structured game. My mom wouldn't let me. Um, and then I, Because she didn't want me to get hurt. She, she thought I'd get hurt, which I did, but it's all good. Uh, she, she thought you were okay with the soccer ball? Soccer's fine, yeah. It's for a safer environment, right? But football, uh, she was worried you were getting But it's like, funny because it's funny because I had a I had a pretty big ego in high school and I was on the junior varsity my freshman year and I was also but they would pick me up for the varsity games also and so I'd play some but since they didn't start me on varsity I was like screw the varsity. I was like I don't want to play soccer if they're not going to start me as a freshman. And like no freshman ever played, but I had just such a big ego that I was like I should be playing anyways. And the football coach was like, I'll start you if you come play for me. I was like, okay, that's all I wanted. So I literally went to football and, you know, in one year I made all state. I was one of the top receivers in the whole state, but I had this athletic ability and the ability to learn and be coached. So there was talent, but I'm trying to figure out where, when you switch, let's say from one sport to another, what meta learning skill did you use to learn the next sport? Like, how do you learn a new how do you learn to learn exactly well i think tim ferris wrote a book about that um but for me it was understanding that each sport has different rules to the game and once i learned the rules to the game that was half the battle because the the mind of just like learning the rules remembering the plays doing all that that's what gets you out of the game when you don't know the football play because then i'm thinking am i supposed to go right here am i supposed to go left like what am i supposed to block so when my mind is out of it and it's thinking too much, I'm not gonna be fully present, I'm not gonna be in the flow, and I'm gonna mess up. So the key is to learn the rules of the game first and master the rules of the game so I don't think about it. It's like when I learned salsa dancing. It took me three and a half months of obsessing six to eight hours a day, only listening to salsa music throughout the entire day. I was a truck driver at the time, making $250 a week. Wait, when was this? This is in 2000. <sighs> Six, 2005, 2006, I was in between uh, football seasons in the Arena League. In the off season, I was just training in the morning, early, and at night. And I would go from um, noon to six, I would drive to Cincinnati from Columbus, Ohio, and back driving Napa car parts, auto parts. And I had the biggest U-Haul that you can drive before you need a commercial license. Mm because I didn't want to get a commercial license and do the testing, so they gave me like the biggest truck before that. And they literally filled up with car parts. I'd get there at 12, noon, drive to Cincinnati. The truck only went 55 miles an hour with the pedal to metal the whole way. So it was so annoying because I could never go fast. And it's all cornfields. There's nothing interesting to look at from Columbus to Cincinnati. It's the most boring drive ever. And back then, but at least I had a CD player back then. And my uh, a friend of mine burned a CD of the top salsa hits of like the decade. I said, send me the best salsa songs. And I listened to this CD all the way there and all the way back. And I would imagine the steps to salsa dancing in my head and kind of just move in the seat, listening the whole way there. Then I was watching YouTube videos for a couple hours every single night, watching the different combinations of the steps and trying to imagine myself doing it. And I'd practice in front of the mirror by myself. I haven't told this story that much. And then I was going out doing- Because it's a little embarrassing. It is a little embarrassing, yes. <laughs> no, tall white kidding. guy just trying to learn salsa dancing by himself. 
And then I started going to group classes where I would go out a couple times a week and get lessons for about an hour with a group. And then I started doing private classes. And then I was going out three, four times a week salsa dancing in salsa clubs, right? These live salsa clubs with bands. And for three and a half months, I didn't know the rules of the game, the sport of salsa, right? Just the art of the dance. There's steps, there's a rhythm, there's a feeling, there's an energy, and I didn't understand it. It was so frustrating, no matter how much I practiced, I was constantly looking down at my feet. I was constantly counting the steps. So what do you mean the rules of the, of the game here? Of anything, like, the rules of the game for anything, whether it be stand-up. You were teaching me the rules of the game. But like in salsa specifically, you didn't know maybe the, the basic step, the one, two, three, yeah, four. Yeah, the, the steps. It's like if, I'm, if I don't know how to lead my partner, if I don't know that it's eight counts and that I'm have to step in a certain place and I always have to go uh, forward on my left on one count and, I, you know, and they've got to go back on their right on the one count. If I didn't understand the rules of the game, just like in, in football, there's an offense and defense. I had mastered the offense after a couple of years, but I still didn't understand defense. So I really didn't master offense until you learn the other side of the game as well, mm -hmm. until you know what the other person is thinking, where they might go. It wasn't until I got into college when I actually understood the game of football. It took me about five years to learn the rules of the game. So let's say you were to start now a totally new skill that you wanted to learn. And many people are in that position where, you know, uh, they might be fired from their job or they might want to pursue a passion. They love something, but how would they get started? What's the first step if you had to learn the rules? Study the of masters of that sport or that art or that thing. Just like what you talked about. You, you watch YouTube videos of the masters that you like and you just watch them and you say, oh, I really like that one strategy or I like how he paused right there or I like how he did some st specific story or whatever it may be. When I went, started learning public speaking when I was in my early 20s, I was going to Toastmasters and mimicking and watching the people that I thought were making me laugh, that were keeping my attention. Mm. And I just studied them. Over and over, over and over, I'd watch films of like Les Brown or whatever. I would just like study it. This is what I learned in sports. I learned to learn through watching game film because that's what we did. So that's how I've applied it to everything in my life from salsa dancing, watching videos, to public speaking, learning the guitar, um, writing books. What's the role of a, of a mentor or a coach? Um, because like with, with football, with salsa dancing, you had a teacher, you had a yep. coach. Um, what, what's the like? So, you're, you, if you just watch YouTube My, videos, you might miss crucial nuances. Yes. And salsa, I would go out uh, when I was just starting out. There were all these incredible guys who would dance, and I remember seeing this one guy who just stood out above everyone. He was just so fluid, so smooth, and I was just like, "You're going to be the guy who teaches me how to salsa because I want to move like that." And I think find the person that we want to be a model like. So I don't know if Seinfeld is like who you want to be like, then I'd find some, you know, find him and have him coach me or use that as my specific model to watch as many times as possible. But for me, I just try to find the people and early on when I didn't have money, I would just beg them to teach me or I'd pay for their classes or whatever it be if it was salsa. Um, but luckily in sports, I just had great coaches that I learned from early on. So they were the always ones teaching me. What's something you tried to learn where you couldn't get to the 80%? Uh, Spanish. I've, I really want to master Spanish just because I love salsa dancing and I love listening to music and I can understand the music, but I don't understand the words. You know what I mean? It's like I understand the feeling and the meaning, but I can't tell you exactly what they're saying. 
I can tell you it's about love or heartache or something like that, but I don't know word for word what they're saying. And so I've always felt like very ignorant because I barely know English and I wish I knew another language. And, but I'm also just not around Spanish speaking people enough to the point where I know it's gonna be so much work to maintain and keep up that part of me wants to live in another country for a year and just like pick it up and have it. But I'm just doing so many things right now here that I can't afford to leave for six months to a year. So you would think the, the rules of the game is, okay, learning the grammar, learn basic vocabulary, but really in this case, maybe the deeper rules of the game is being in a place. You gotta practice it all the time. You gotta immerse yourself in it. You know, for me, if you wanna get to a level of 70, 80% kind of mastery, right? You know, talent stacking is what he said. Yeah. And for me, it took me three and a half months of literally that's all I did with my life. Probably just like you in the first year, like you were just doing stand up every night or just watching videos all day or getting lessons from people for the first year, I'm assuming, to get to a place to where you're at now. And there's a whole nother level for you to grow to. But for me, I and I didn't have anything else going on. I was 24, 25. I was, you know, broke. I was just like sitting around all day. So I could immerse myself in salsa culture, experiences, environments, and the people. And I remember the moment when it was like, I'm fluent. It was like, I understood it. It was like, I didn't have to think anymore. I was in the club one night. My teacher was there and I'd been doing group classes with him, private stuff, all this stuff for about three and a half months. And in salsa, it looks really smooth when you do like a double turn in one moment. Because usually I would just do one spin because I didn't know how to do anything else. But there's guys that do like six, seven, eight spins and it just, and then they landed on the beat and it looks so smooth. At least that's the way I thought. I was like, that looks incredible. I would love to be able to learn how to do that. But I could never figure it out. I didn't have the coordination. I didn't have the timing. It was always very awkward. And one night I had my teacher, I was like, just show me this until I get it in the club in the middle of all the mess. And he showed it to me and I just kept messing up and messing up and messing up. And then finally he said something in a different way that made me, it was like, oh, okay. He explained it in a different way where it resonated the way I think. Do you remember what he said? I can't remember what this was, but I remember just being like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Like he said, like, make sure you don't step on this first or don't step that way first. Like wait for the beat to go the second turn. It was something like that. But he just said it and he coached it in a different way for the way my brain worked. And I remember I did this and I did this double turn and it was it felt so good. And I did it again and again and again until I was like, this just clicked. I stopped looking down at my feet and like counting steps. I stopped counting in my head and I just felt the music for the first time. And I was so confident I could go up and grab the best dancers in the city. And then eventually I was traveling the world, finding the best salsa clubs. And right when I would go in the club, I would condition myself to find the best dancer in the club. And I was like, I'm not gonna dance until I ask her first. Cause I was always terrified. I was this tall white guy. I already stood out. There's no tall white guys in salsa clubs. So already people- What are you saying? Who's in salsa clubs? It's usually clubs? Latin people, right? It's like Latin people and, and not tall white guys, right? Yeah. It's just like, I don't know. We never really go, I guess. Yeah. See like one other dude in the club and you're like, hey man, good to see you, right? Yeah. And, um, and I was like, for me, it was a fear of mine because I never felt accepted in the culture, right? The, the language, the dance, the culture. When people looked at me, they were like, no, you probably can't dance. So girls would say no. And so I always said, I need to go ask 
the best dancer in every club first, right when I get in there, before I start dancing, because it terrifies me, and I want to get over that fear of being terrified of rejection. So, so what you're saying, it strikes me there's a couple of things. One is when your teacher was saying over and over, and you kept messing up and messing up and messing up, there's a meta thing there, which is that you just simply didn't say, forget this, I'm, I'm out of here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, well, I can't I do it. I well, think I was committed to figuring it out. And but but when, when, would there, when should someone say, I'm not going to get this, this is too hard for me? When they don't care, when they're not mm-hmm. passionate enough. Because maybe if I would have done it for another three months and I still was like, man, I suck, and I lost passion for it, then I probably would have stopped. So, so, so passion kind of rules that inner compass to tell you whether to keep I going I think so, or not. yeah. I mean, I was like, I just still loved it so much. Yeah. I was so excited about it. I just wanted to watch more videos. I loved listening to music. And then, so for me, it was, there was no other agenda. I was just like, this is exciting. I think, I think that's crucial too, is having no other agenda. If you were like, um, I'm only doing this to make money or something as a stand-up comedian, like, Eventually, it's going to be exhausting after you get rejected tons of times. You're like, oh, this sucks. There's better yeah. ways to make money. But you're probably just so fascinated by being up there and overcoming something and the challenge that it has for you and like the ability to express your art that you love it. You're obsessed with it. And so you've been doing it for two and a half years. You're not making money from it, assuming. Maybe you're making like 50 bucks a night or something, but you're not really, Stepping you're spending money. You're money. spending <laughs> money to be on stage, right? It's like, because you'll do it when you love it. I just interviewed Tony Hawk. And he was like, you know, I got famous in the late, the early 80s. It was the early mid 80s. Then when skateboarding kind of had its hit, then it went, it died for like six years. Skateboarding was like dead to the world. Like no one cared. There was no sponsorship money. We were literally going to competitions to make $100 if we won. There was no money. I was thinking about doing other side jobs, but I loved skateboarding so much that I was doing it. Even if I had to pay, I would do it because he just loved it. And then when it came back around six, seven years later, when the X Games came around and he did the 900, he became the most iconic athlete in the world along with like Kobe and Shaq. And he said, I did it because I was just so in love with it and just wanted to challenge myself. And I wanted to learn new tricks. And I think that's why I stayed with it because I was just like, I love this and I love the challenge. So, so, so it's that passion which kind of fuels uh, the persistence in yep. the face of so you, you probably didn't view each thing as failure. You just you view it no, as like I'm getting better. Yeah, I was or, like I'm getting better every day. Right, and then and then mm-hmm. the other thing is the aspect of going up to the best dancer in the club as the very first mm-hmm. thing you did. Sounds like you realized again. This is like a meta learning thing. For each situation you were involved in that in, that had to do with mm-hmm. the skill you were learning, mm-hmm. is figure out how to first get a little bit out of your comfort zone. A little bit out. Because if I get out of my comfort zone right away, um, the rest of the night was going to be a success. But if I was, because I would go out two, three times a week easily for years in salsa dance. And some nights I would go out and I would wait to dance. And I wouldn't dance at all because I was just living in fear of rejection. And I would just sit there and watch. And so I was just like, I never want to go out, take the time to go out and watch because I'm afraid of like getting rejected. So I'm just gonna get it out of the way right away. And if someone rejects me, I'm gonna go to the next person who's like the next best person. And I'm gonna keep going. This reminds me of, of and this is, this is your story, but this reminds me of when probably a few years after this, you're broke living on your sister's mm-hmm. couch yep. and you started uh, getting super immersed in how to use LinkedIn. That's it. 
and you threw your first uh, kind of live session or you know, a meetup yep. w- about with people who wanted to learn more about LinkedIn. And I imagine that was out of your comfort zone. Absolutely. I remember showing up to the first event I held in St. Louis, Missouri. And I called up different restaurants and bars and asked them what the worst night of the week was for them. I was like, when does no one show up? They were like Tuesday or Wednesday. I said, okay, I'm gonna try to bring a few hundred people. Can I have it for free? Because I didn't want to pay for a space. And they said, sure. And I remember showing up. I only had one like sport coat at the time. I was broke, right? I had one suit jacket. I think I wore jeans and like a black shirt or something underneath. And I remember saying like, I have no clue who's gonna show up. There's a bunch of people that had RSVP'd on like the page on LinkedIn, but I'd never done an event. I have no clue what I'm doing. I was so terrified, but I was just like, you know what? I'm just gonna greet every person that comes here. I'm gonna shake everyone's hand, say hello, get their name, get their card, and try to connect them with someone else. Just try to connect them with one person. And if they can meet one person that can help them in their business or get a job, then that's a success for me. So did they, I mean, did you ever think to yourself like, okay, I'm teaching people how to build a career, get a job. At that time, it was just events. I wasn't teaching anything. I was just like bringing them together. But I was like, how can I add value besides bringing them together by trying to personally connect each person with someone else? But when they came in, asking them like, what's the thing you're looking to create tonight? Like, what's your challenge? What's the big thing you're working on? And then I'd meet someone five minutes later who's like, I'm looking for this other thing. And I was like, oh, you got to go meet so-and-so who's here as well. And I'd just go partner them up and say, start the conversation. You're looking for this. You're looking for this. Talk. Then I'd go back and meet the next person at the door. So it sounds like in each of these cases, every situation pushing yourself a little bit out of your comfort zone, in addition to building a skill, it also gives you lots of stories. So you're able to say, well, I introduced this person who did this to this person who did this, and then this is what happened. That's it. And so you probably had hundreds of stories, and then Tons later on you were able studies. to build a course on Absolutely. how to use LinkedIn to build Absolutely. your career. Or, or you're able to you know, relate to these two girls or relate to someone who's right. afraid of money. Um, so, so I think it's really interesting that kind of persistently getting out of your comfort zone mm-hmm. in whatever skill you're trying to learn, what it does is it generates lots of stories that yep. then become relatable to now in this show to a general audience. Yeah, and this is something I, I've- Like you just told the story of Tony Hoff, for instance, like through your podcast, you get mm-hmm. lots of stories as well. So storytelling, yep. you're able to translate that in to what somebody in the audience might be having a problem with, and that's your job. That's it. That's it. It's trying to be relatable, trying to be relatable to the live audience, to the Facebook audience, and trying to create relatable moments for people so that they can resonate with something and then apply the information or the story or the training or the exercise to their own life to live a more inspiring life. That's the key. And so, so what does that mean though? Like, what's a before and after if they're living a more inspiring life? Less pain, less fear, less frustration, more joy, more happiness, more fulfillment, or- What does fulfillment mean? Depends on who we're talking to. But I think fulfillment for me is knowing that I'm making a, a big impact on people's lives, knowing that I'm growing every single day or at least trying to grow every single day and knowing that I'm <clears throat> pursuing the things that I care about the most, that I'm excited about. For me, that's fulfillment. If, I'm, if I've got a dream that I'm excited about and I'm working towards it, I'm seeing progress, that's great. If I'm just growing in my personal life, my relationships and my health, I feel fulfilled. And if I'm helping other people 
in some way in their life, then that's like a triple layer of fulfillment for me personally. And so, so at some point, you got on Ellen. How did you, first off, how did you get on Ellen? Like Ellen's. Well, Scooter Braun made the introduction. He's incredible. And he's the executive producer on this Facebook show as well. And, um, and he's, he's been on your podcast. He's been on the podcast a few times. And he said a couple of years ago, he was like, we should do a TV show together. And I want to connect you with Ellen. She's a good friend. And I want you guys to meet and I want to develop a show with you uh, in more words or less. And I said, awesome. So I met with Ellen. I met with her team. They're all incredible. And she said, let's, let's get you on the show. Or her team was like, let's get you on the show first and see how our audience reacts to you. Before we go on to more talks of like creating something else together, let's get you on and see how it goes. So we did that. And then they had me come back on again a couple weeks later, which was great. And the whole time I'm talking to Scooter, I say, you know what? I think it didn't work out with, with Ellen's team. Like they had too many projects on their plate at the time. Um, I'd love to still do something with them, but they had too much going on, I think, where... We also had, I told Scooter, I said, listen, I love, I would love to work with Ellen in some way, but I also know that I want to be on Facebook. And this was, I told him this before they were buying original content, but I said, I want to create a show like Ellen's show, like Oprah's show, where it's interactive, it's inspiring, it's moving, it helps people. But I think traditional TV is really hard right now. And for, my Particularly audience, yeah. for that thing. Yeah, because like, there's two types of talk shows. There's morning and there's late night. Yeah, and and, uh, and, and then the, the interview shows yeah. are dying. Yeah, but, but late night is all about you know comedy and satire. Yeah, and, and like the morning variety shows, shows. Yeah, yeah, morning shows are a bit more inspirational, but they're a bit more formatted and, and newsy and yeah. Yeah, so the, what you're pitching to Facebook, you wouldn't find on any, you wouldn't even find on Netflix or Hulu or anything like that. Right, right, yeah. So, so you knew you wanted to go to Facebook, like when you and went this, to- I didn't even know that Facebook was going to buy original content, but I just said to him, I was like, I knew I wanted to go there because they have the largest distribution in the world. Why didn't you just do it? Like, why didn't you just- Do it myself? Yeah, rent out a place, invite a bunch of people <laughs> and do it as Facebook Lives and build it up that way. Because I wanted Facebook as my partner. I wanted them behind it. I wanted their stamp of approval saying, we fully support this. We're going to invest in it and we're going to feature it. That's what I wanted. And so I said that to Scooter and he said, okay. He said, he called up, you know, the COO or someone, like someone at the, the high level. And he said, you know, I've got a guy here. <laughs> he always calls me white male Oprah. So he's like, I've got white male Oprah here. He's super inspiring. And I like how he instantly branded you as something they could relate to. Yeah. Like they can easily picture that, what that is. He's a brilliant marketer, manager. You it know. should be mentioned, he discovered Justin Bieber exactly. among many other- He represents super- Kanye and Ariana Grande and all these other big superstars. And um, he said, <clears throat> he said, okay, if that's what you want, like he talked to Ellen about doing something and I was like, if it works out, cool, let's do it. But really, I also want to do something on Facebook. And- so we, we had a conversation with um, someone at Facebook who I just met with today. Uh, again, a really nice guy. His name is Ricky Van Veen. And I said, listen, I've got this idea for a show that I want Facebook to get behind. And he said, <laughs> he said we, we are doing original content, but I don't think we're ready for that type of show. And this was in like January of last year, like a year and a half ago, almost two years ago. He's like, we are actually going to do original content, but... I don't think we're ready for that show, but there's another show that we're 
we're looking to, to, to purchase or partner with that you could be a good host for. And long story short, I went down the road of like potentially doing that show and being the host of it. You know, they had an agreement, a contract for me, but there was too much exclusivity where I wasn't able to do certain things in my own podcast and business. And I just felt like, you know what? I really want to partner with Facebook. I really want to do this. Like I was struggling so hard because this would have been the first show that they launched on Facebook. They were going to put a ton of promotion behind it and I was going to be the host. And I was thinking to myself, all right, let me do this for a while, show them the skills I do have and then go do the show I want to do. I eventually said, you know what? I'm going to have to pull out because of certain exclusivity things where I was like, it just doesn't feel like I'm willing to give up so many things for the potential for this when I wasn't sure what it would be. Um, and I came back a few months later and said, you know, I don't want to do this show. Uh, I do want to do this show, but the exclusivity doesn't work for me. But I'd really like to do this other concept, which is Inspiring Life with Lewis House. And I kind of pitched him this concept in about 20 minutes. And he goes, well, why don't we just do that right now? And I was like, well, I talked to you about six months ago about this. And he goes, well, we weren't ready for it, but now we are. And so I said, okay, let's do this. So we've been working ever since on this show concept that's been my original vision from almost two years ago. And it just took some like twists and turns to get there. Um, but now we're almost here. So I don't remember why I was saying this, but oh yes, I wanted to be on Facebook because they've got over 2 billion people. If you get a show on TV right now, how are people going to find it? You need the network on NBC or Fox to promote it on their other shows within their channel and say, come at seven o'clock and watch Lewis Howes' new show. So you've got to be promoting it everywhere else to get, bring attention. You've got to buy billboards or bus signs or whatever it is to tell people about your show. People got to show up at that time to watch it. And typically you can't watch it otherwise unless you DVR it, I guess. And I said to myself, I don't want that model. I want a model where a partner of mine, a distribution network, can feature it in front of anyone they want at any time. So when someone opens up their channel, their TV on their phone, you can put it in front of 30 million moms with one kid, with two kids, if you're talking about motherhood. Mm -hmm. You can target people exactly. So at least they'll see the first few seconds. I was like, that's the type of partner I want, and that's where the future is heading. In my mind, is targeted programming and having the data to know who is exactly going to like this message, not just hopefully they'll like today's topic, but we know exactly. And you can constantly tap into different audiences. And I just had a feeling like Facebook's got the data. They and know who's on their platform. They have the data, and and people would be amazed to know actually – like how much data they have. I mean, they know how many strawberries you ate last month. They know, right, they know everything about you. You know when you go to the bathroom, right? right? It's like, and so, but do they say to you, okay, we're going to guarantee you a billion impressions on your ads for your show? They haven't guaranteed anything. Mm -hmm. So it's you know they said, listen, we're gonna we're gonna make sure it's seen. We're gonna share it out, but they haven't said like this is exactly what we're going to do and how many views it's gonna get. And I think they're kind of figuring out their own system. You know, they're it's brand new for them. They're starting essentially like a, a TV you know, movie content network. And how how does, like, you know, television traditionally had its own set of deals, then there's streaming, and, yeah. you know, that's a different type of deal. Netflix offers a different type of deal than NBC offers for yep. a show. 
for Facebook, what do they do? Do they give you some lump sum and then out of that you figure out how to produce the show and then you take the rest or how does it how does it work economically? I wish it was that way. I mean, they um they they paid, you know, I I worked I worked with them to hire a production company. So I met a bunch of different production companies after Facebook said, "Okay, we're locked. We've got the agreement. Like you've got the show. We just need to find a, a producer now, a production company." So we found we were talking about ITV, Left Field Productions is the production company, great team. And um, I met with them and I felt like they could handle the show that I wanted to do and they got me and they got the show the most. So essentially Facebook worked directly with them, gave them a certain budget. I'm not exactly sure what the budget is. My contract is a separate uh, talent fee and executive producer fee and some other things. Um, so I have my fee based on per episode and all those things, but... You know, it's a, it's a budget. It's like a it's a real show it's, production. It's a, you know, it's a, it's pretty cheap though, is my guess. So they they have probably have three cameras, right? Or or they have more. I think they uh, I think there was four cameras. Um, but they have a warehouse in Brooklyn. We built out a whole set from scratch. Right. Um, there's casting directors. There's a full production team. There's writers. There's you know showrunner. Why do you need writers? to develop the, each episode topic. Mm. You know, we come up with the title, then we come up with each segment, then we're writing out the questions, we're writing out the different stuff that I'm gonna be saying on the teleprompter. So we're going over all that stuff. Uh, there's a lot of research, there's a lot of interviews for backstories from the, the people we're gonna be bringing mm. on. We're producing their stories as well. We do other man on the street content for three days where I'm interviewing people for, you know, six, seven, eight hours a day. So it was a lot of work. This is the most work on anything I've ever done. More than a book. And do you think, I mean, we'll see when it when it airs, but do you think so far has it, has it been worth it to you? Not financially, but just in terms of, did you enjoy it? It's been worth it, definitely. I'm The reason I didn't say yes right away is because I'm a little nervous of how the launch is going to go because I've put so much energy and time into this. Uh, you know, I've put everything else pretty much on hold or I've just kind of maintained things to go so much into this. And... There's no guarantees of like how much views they're gonna get or where they're gonna put it. Like they said they're gonna do that stuff and I'm sure it'll do well, but I want it to get picked up again. You know, I put a lot of energy into this. I really believe in it and I'm proud of it and I want it to get picked up. So for me, it's just like, okay, I just gotta really deliver. You and know? particularly if, it, if it's the sort of thing where it's gonna get millions of views, that's different than a podcast. I feel like podcasting, yeah. again, like you mentioned, there's 600,000 podcasts out there. There is some kind of, cap on podcast numbers. That's it. Just because even as you improve, there's just more podcasts out there. They've taken like a couple hundred, you know, listeners here and there or whatever, just more options to listen to. Yeah. So do you feel like you're obviously still doing your podcast? Uh -huh. Like do you feel and but and you've been doing your podcast, I think five and a half years. Five and a half years. Six hundred and yeah. seventy four episodes. Yeah, that's a lot. It's a lot a lot of podcasts. Like do you get are you tired of it? Um I wouldn't say I'm tired of it. I still love it. But like, I'm tired me, of logistics let me, sometimes. Let me, let me ask you this question though: Like, if everybody you interview, and when we have a lot of overlapping yeah. guests, I think you there's a big intersection in the middle between your guests and mine. But the, and sometimes I even say uh, when I have a guest on, oh, first off, my listeners should listen to Lewis Howe's podcast with you because he did an ex. If they want your your bio and background and everything, and then I go a different direction with that because yeah, yeah. I don't want to repeat. But um, I think you are a little bit more on kind of sports and the you know physical mm -hmm, stuff. Mm -hmm. But um, do you ever get like okay, you've done six hundred episodes of like the greatest P 
people yeah. on the planet. There's still people I want to get though. Probably like you with like comedians, you really want like Yeah, there's still people names. I want to get. But like with the average greatest person in the world, they kind of just say the same thing over and over. They say the same thing as the other greatest person in the world. Yes, but the stories always still fascinate me. I'm still curious about how they thought and how they think now and their mindset. Like you asking me these questions of me sharing about how I learned certain sports and salsa dancing, like I don't really share that that much. So for me, it was actually really fun to share and talk about that and be like, yeah, man, I've learned so many different things and this is how I did it in the formula. But I didn't really write that down ever. You know, it was just kind of like fun to re to reshare. So interviewing Tony Hawk to hear him talk about, you know, I kept doing it for five, six years when there was no money. I had like the recognition and then no one cared. And then all of a sudden it blew up. And you know, that's the interesting thing though, is honing in on what are those critical moments. So like I've interviewed Tony Hawk and I thought the critical moment would be simply, how did he learn how to be the best in the world? But he learned so young, I felt very quickly he couldn't really verbalize how he learned because he right. learned when he was like six it's years like, old. I just played I just played outside every day and just got better. Yeah. So so the critical thing was during that time when for him, when skateboarding was basically made largely illegal in California because so many kids were getting hurt, and he had to just keep on, you know, making skateboards or making clothing. And then finally the X Games arrived. And he and because he stuck with it, he was the last man standing. Was it? So, last man standing, he just stuck with it. And I think um So so those yeah. are critical like I think like I've seen you as a podcaster from from beginning to to now and I would say my assessment is you were used to be a lot more nervous at the beginning of a podcast. Sure. And I think you learned to trust more your intuitive skills of interviewing than your research skills. Yeah. Is I, still, my guess. I still get nervous sometimes. I don't know if you do ever, but I still I'll, get nervous. I always do. Yeah, I still get nervous, except for with me. We're old buddies. But if it's like someone I've never met who I'm really inspired by, I'm like, God, I just don't want to mess this up. And I want to get the best I can. And I've only got 40 minutes sometimes or 30 minutes. And I'm like, I just don't want to say the wrong thing. And I want to make sure I'm leading it the right way so my audience gets the most out of it. I think I'm more nervous because I want to just add value to my audience. I never want to let my audience down. And I think I just need to let that go and say, I'm going to do my best no matter what. And hopefully they still like it. Um, but like, what, what would you say out of the 670 uh, episodes, what's the, th I mean, I feel I, my, 370 episodes, I feel like it's changed me because you you encounter these people from all these different fields who are who are really the best in the world at what they do, like like a Tony Hawk or whoever. Uh, what's changed in you from from interviewing all these people? Because you obviously they teach you things that you learn from. Yeah, I just think I've really grown up you know, in the last five and a half years. You know, I opened up so many things have happened in my life since I started. And I've had the podcast to kind of share it. It's like my living journal, right? It's like I'm sharing how I'm improving as a person or the mistakes I'm making or what I'm learning in my life on my podcast as well. You know, I opened up about sexual trauma and abuse on my podcast and my audience got to experience it with me and they got to see me grow. Uh, I started interviewing more and more people that were my idols who became my friends and I started to grow in a different way that way. I started to just learn things that I would apply in spiritual practices or financial practices or in fitness and health. And so it improved me because I applied what I was learning. And the ability to reach more people has obviously <clears throat> improved my life because it's helped me build my business. It's helped me throw big events, you know, write books. I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing without the podcast. There's no way. There's no chance I'd have that reach.
But at the same time, the podcast inspires me to continue to get out of my comfort zone. And that's why this show is really important. Like doing this show or doing something like this is really important because I've never done it before. It terrifies me. It's like dancing with the the best salsa dancer in the room. Uh, you know, it's still scary because it's new and it's a, a challenge that I've never done. I've been on talk shows, but it's one thing to be interviewed by, interviewed by someone in front of an audience. It's another thing to have to interview them, manage like reading on a teleprompter at the same time, managing the energy of the audience to make their, their, sure they're captivated, watching the showrunner's direction, reading the cue cards of the other person who's navigating the show, making sure that the executives who are watching in the control room from Facebook are happy and pleased, thinking about them, hearing the director's comments come through, the other person telling me what to do, and just making sure I'm not sweating in my armpits, right? <laughs> it's like managing all that is different than just turning on a mic and saying, let's chat for an hour. Well, right, so, and there's, a, there's also an, an added factor, which is you kind of have to inspire these people you're talking to. I gotta with, be in the zone. Right, right, with a podcast, you don't know who's listening, but your audience is right there. At least your they're, initial audience is right there right in the room. They're right there, and it's also just like- Does it make you feel like a fraud? that you have to inspire people? Because that's like a bullshit term, inspiring people. Well, the show wasn't called that originally. But, but, but people understand the term. I don't mean it in a, yeah. you know, I don't mean you're bullshitting. I just mean inspiration doesn't necessarily mean anything. The show wants to inspire, yes. I think, you know, it's funny, the first day of the show, because I'd been working on this for a year and a half when we started filming it. It's almost two years now. And the, the hour and a half, two hours before we started filming, I was at the set, I'm on set, they're setting everything up. It's before the audience is there. And I kind of walk back into like my changing room or whatever. And I'm thinking to myself like, oh shit, like it's about to happen. Like this is the thing I've been wanting and the vision I've had and the thing I've been working for for a year and a half. And there were so many people, there's like four security people there that they've hired like bodyguards or whatever for the audience and all the crew that just came off some like Emmy award winning show. and the executives from Facebook and the production company and everyone was there because of a vision that I had, right, with Scooter. And I'm thinking to myself, I can't mess up. Like, now's the time. Be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. I got what I wanted and now it's time for me to deliver. But you've, you've been in that situation many times. So when you're, yes. when you're trying out for the Olympics, yeah. when you're in the big football game, yes, when yes. you're uh, having that first event for when LinkedIn. When I go on a big stage and speak in front of thousands of people, like luckily I'd had the experience of high pressure moments. So I knew that it was like two minutes of me feeling that way. So, so what's the process of getting through a high pressure moment? One of the, I mean, it all depends on the stage because in sports, it was always easy to get away with because I had teammates that you could kind of hide in the huddle. Mm -hmm. Like you weren't just standing on the field alone with an audience watching you. And I always got away with it on football because I was nervous in big moments, but I could rely on my quarterback. I could rely on the line. I could rely on everyone else on the team, the coach. Everyone was there. And all I had to do was do my role, which was run the route and catch the ball. It's much easier than like being the guy who's got to throw the ball. So for me, I feel like I got away with it in sports because I had a team. Being on stage and hosting a show is a lot different than playing a sport. So it's a different mindset because there's a different level of pressure. I used to be terrified of getting in front of five people and speaking. I was so scared back in my early 20s. And that's why I went to Toastmasters every single week for a year 
to overcome the fear and learn how to stand in front of people without just you know failing and bombing the whole time. And I started speaking on stages for years, but I was always nervous until someone told me, and I got more confident over time and got better and, and figured out ways to overcome that, that fear. But when one of my coaches, his name is Chris Lee, I was like, I don't know how to like overcome this total fear of speaking on stage. And maybe it's good to have a little bit of nerves. You know, it's probably good to have some nerves because it means you care. But I was like, how do I get over that like crippling fear where I feel like it's holding me back? And he said, stop thinking about you and start focusing on the audience. Like focus on giving, focus on being of service to the audience, focus on how can I show up to the best of my ability to give to them. You're going to mess up. You're going to forget what you were supposed to say at some time. You're going to stutter or you're going to say um and ah. You're not going to be perfect. So stop having that pressure of needing to be perfect or remembering every story or everything or every point and focus out. And when I start to feel nervous before a speech, I just say, you know what? I'm going to take the pressure off me and I'm just going to focus out. And I say, I'm here to give. I'm here to give. I'm here to give. As opposed to what are people going to think about me? I hope I look good. I hope I look funny or smart or as good as the last person who went on stage. I just let that go. And I think, again, over the years of just learning this through podcast interviews and other things I've done, I've learned to strip my ego away in those moments. Yes, I'm the one shining on stage, but I try to take the spotlight and put it back onto the audience. And that's what I try to do with this talk show. That's what I try to do with my podcast is not make it about me, is put it on the expert, put it on the guests, put it on the human interests, put it on the stage or the audience. And it takes the pressure off of me. The spotlight might be shining on me, but the goal is to reflect that light on everyone else. And it's interesting in the one story you described again, with the two girls who were uh-huh. uh, abused, it's almost like you take that same technique and apply it to what they were going through. Mm-hmm. You didn't say, here's what I would do if Let I Let me were jump you. in here, yeah. You said, you're okay yep. where you are, and it's okay to do what you're doing. And I find that's all often what people just need is just permission to know that what they're doing is not wrong. Exactly. And 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 then you bring in the experts and that who that could take care right. of the rest. Right, exactly. So yeah, who was the expert on that show? Gabby Bernstein. Oh yeah, I yeah. like Gabby talking about forgiveness. She was yeah. on like my like episode three or four. Really, like back, she's back amazing. In the day. So when's the show start? Monday, August sixth comes out. All you got to do is go on Facebook, type in "Inspiring Life," and you can like the page and watch the video when it comes out. Do you have any sense of the numbers? They're expecting where they say, "Well, I just met below with, this. It's a failure, and above I, this." Is I literally success. just had lunch with uh, the guy who you know is who bought the show, and I was just like, "Tell me what are you expecting?" Because I and he really didn't give me a, a clear answer, but I was just like, "I'm gonna do my best to get you know millions of views." And and he was like, "You know, the key is like the consistency. So each week, like we want to see that." It's not dropping a ton in views, you know, that it's kind of staying consistent, that people are still interested week by week. So hopefully if people keep watching, then it's a success in their minds. I mean, we'll see. I have no clue. It's still kind of the wild, wild west. Can, can they make it an IGTV show as well? Potentially, but I think it's really early for them for that. So but the that's goal, one way to cross-pollinate. The, the goal is to, and I'll be taking clips and putting it on IGTV and my Instagram and promoting it there. But the goal is, as Instagram continues to evolve, hopefully the show will be on both platforms and they'll be promoting it on the top of Instagram, the top of Facebook. That's why I went to, to Facebook and pitched this show because 
they have those two huge networks and that's where everyone's spending their time. And I just feel like you got to go to where the people are. Yeah, I sort of feel like traditional media, which is like, oh, we'll put a TV show on a TV, that that's quickly dying. And that basically, it's like you just said, any website that has a large amount of traffic can create original programming. That's it. And just send people to that and make it even subscription or advertising or whatever. And they're doing like mid-roll ads on the shows. So like every whatever five or seven minutes, there'll be like a 15 to 30 second I don't know if you know like, like Uber, right? They're doing they, a show now. They have a, a movie by Spike Lee uh, following five Yeah, is that a movie around. or is it a TV show? Uh, I don't know. I think I it's just a see docu-series. It yeah, I think it's yeah. a docu-series. Huh. Yeah. So, but Facebook obviously is, is the ideal place because of all the data. Three billion people on Facebook and Instagram. It's like, so I'm, my goal, I'm betting on them figuring it out. You know, they're very new. They're, they're starting to discover certain things of what works, what doesn't. And I'm okay with being one of the first and like them experimenting with me and taking that risk because I feel like if we can get picked up again, and then hopefully get picked up for another 100 episodes afterwards or, or more, then I'll be able to grow with them through the growing pains and really create some positive content on Facebook. You know, another reason is just like there's so much negativity with politics happening a couple of years ago. And still today, there's just so much negative content on Facebook that people are posting. And I said, if we can create something to interject all the negativity and bring something of value, something a little more positive, just like what you do with your cartoons from the podcast. It's like something interesting, fun, and valuable. Then that's entertainment worth watching and worth posting and sharing. And I want to create more stuff like you, you know, just more entertaining, valuable stuff. So Inspiring Life with Lewis Howes on Facebook Watch starting Monday, August 6th. Good luck. This definitely Thank sounds you. like out of your comfort zone, but uh, I'm sure it'll be be fun. Uh, have me on as a coach, season two. Are you? Let's do it. What are we right. to talk about? Minimalism. Whatever you want. There's a million things I could okay. we could talk about. Okay. So, um, good luck. I'm gonna I'm gonna watch it myself, and we'll we'll talk. My man, appreciate you. Come back before season two. Let's do it. Excellent. Thanks, Lois. Thank you. 